Amen. Praise the Lord. They're married, by the way. I don't know if I made that clear or not. And uh, let that be a lesson to you. If uh, you're a couple and maybe you ought to go in and start taking some LFBI classes together. And, I, you know, I think uh, Delana and I could do that very well as long as we didn't talk about them. <laughs> and uh, that's not because uh, my truth is different than her truth. But, you know, even for people who do not think quite the same, the same way, or pick up the same things as, as they hear something, um, as long as we're all submitted to God's truth and it becomes our truth, then uh, that can only be a good thing. So I'm going to ask you to get uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 in your left hand, Luke chapter 18 in your right hand, 2 Kings 2, Luke chapter 18. I love the Lord, he heard my cry. And pitied every groan. Long as I live and troubles rise, I'll hasten to his throne. Someone heard Pastor Grace's cry and replaced the sissy pulpit. And we are all happy about that. <laughs> Replace that sissy pulpit. Let me read to you an interesting obituary. Mrs. Prayer Meeting died recently at the first neglected church on Worthy Avenue. Born years ago in the midst of great revival, she was one of the most influential members of the church family for the past several years. Mrs. Prayer Meeting had been in failing health. Her last whispered words were inquiries concerning the absence of her loved one, now busy in employment and entertainment. Experts, including Dr. Works, Dr. Reform, and Dr. Joyner, disagreed as to the cause of her fatal illness. They administered large doses of organization, programs, and conferences, but to no avail. A post-mortem autopsy revealed a deficiency of spiritual food, coupled with a lack of trust and general apathy, were contributing causes. Only a few were present at her death, but in honor of her homegoing, the church doors will be closed Tuesday nights. Or in the case of Harvest, Wednesday nights. That's when we have our prayer meeting. You know, the question I think today is not, does prayer work as if prayer in and of itself were some type of magical talisman or superstitious ritual? The real question is, does the power to whom you are praying work on your behalf? Does the one to whom you are directing your prayer work? Now, I want to show you what I mean from here in 2 Kings chapter 2 on the way to really the passage I want to get to in discussing corporate prayer, and that's Luke chapter 18. But 2 Kings chapter 2, if you'll look at verse 9, it says, It came to pass when they were gone over, uh, meaning over the, over the river, uh, not through the woods, but over the river, because uh, Elijah was going to be taken up that day. And so Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I ta be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Okay, wait. I need a double portion to assist double vision. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Elijah had just had a full life of miracles fulfilling his message, proving his message. I mean, a full life of miracles. 
I mean, just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit acted as a finger God. He just had miracles going off his fingertips in, in the things that he was doing in order to confirm the message he was giving to God's people. But God's people were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked. They would not come to worship. They did not go to retreat. So Jesus says God sent prophets to preach to them about getting back into the way of God and actually following him with their life. And now, now Elijah had suffered a lifetime of rejection in that ministry. Apparently, he did not read all the books on how to grow your church. And so he was all discouraged, which is why he is now ready to throw in the mantle he says, Elisha, you've been with me a long time. I mean, you've been great to me. And what can I give you as a parting gift? And Elisha thinks for a minute. He doesn't ask anything for himself. I mean, can you imagine if he had asked for certain items, certain memorabilia, how he could have put that on eBay, how much money he could have got? And he didn't think about that. He says, okay, uh, here's what I want. Do it again. Elijah says, well, okay, well, what do you mean, do it again? Well, give me the gift of the Spirit like you have the Spirit so that I can duplicate everything you just did because God's people are still not listening. I want a double, I want a duplicate portion. Verse 10. And Elijah said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken up, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. I mean, this is a hard thing you're asking because the Holy Spirit is not mine to give but God's. And frankly, I'm fed up with these people. I mean, I've had it up to here. So I do not know what God will answer in your request for this. I mean, these people are my kin, but they ain't my kind. And they have been blind to everything I've been saying to them. They've been blind in spite of the amazing miracles God's Spirit performed through me. So I tell you what, here's how we will know. They have blinded themselves, but if you see me as I am leaving, then we will know God is answering your prayer positively. We will know that God is willing to do a duplicate ministry, a double portion of these things for these hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. Turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 and Psalm 103. Keep, keep Luke chapter 18. But Nehemiah 9 and Psalm 103. Can you imagine how history would have changed if Elisha had not prayed? If Elisha had asked for something else? If Elisha had thought of himself and not the people that Elijah was so discouraged over? I mean, he would have went on as Elijah's successor. He would have said the same things, but without the accompanying proof-giving power. And so maybe 
Maybe this is one thing you do not know. Let me hit you with my thesis for today's study. When it comes to spiritual life, the proof is in the power. The proof is in the power. And I'll say, even if it looks like it results in failure, as it did in Elijah's life, the proof is in the power to go through the failure. The proof is in having a disciple who, who picks up the mantle when you throw it in. And so if Elisha had the message but had, had not had Elijah's miracles, then it would have shown that God's mercy had run out. And Elisha wasn't having that. Elisha was believing that God was a merciful God and, and that God was still doing what, what, what he had been doing and that Elisha was going to claim what God had already promised. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16, confession is made, but they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused to obey, neither, watch, were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. Wow, as like, you wanna appoint a captain for that? But thou art a God, hold it. Nehemiah's getting ready to claim something God's already promised. Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. You know, the word grace is really repeated so many times in your Old Testament. Psalm 103, verse 8. This word of grace occurs so many times. I mean, it starts off like in Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and, and now Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. So here's what you need to know. Let me hit you with this definition. All prayer is a plea. And I think biblically, if you examine it, and I know we, we do prayer in different ways and we, you know, we, have, we get in our mind certain things about prayer, some of that influence from different areas, some of it good, some of it's not, some of it's correct, some of it's not. Well, I'd say if you study prayer in the Bible and look at it biblically, it is in some way a plea for God to fulfill what he's already promised. So Elisha puts up a prayer. He makes his plea based on Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 103, verse 8, Psalm 145, verse 8, Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And even though the people to that moment had been blinded, they had blinded themselves during the entire life of Elijah. And even though let me help out some of my Calvinist friends. Even though God knew in advance that the response was going to be the same thing in the life of Elisha, that their response was going to be exactly the same, his foreknowledge knew that, God answered simply because he prayed. God gave it another shot because Elisha 
wanted them to have another shot. Elisha wanted him to have another shot. You know, if you get sick and you come down with COVID, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things going on the internet, and, you know, so somebody says, well, you know, tequila heals COVID. And I don't know if it does or not, but I guess it's worth a shot. (laughs) All I'm trying to say is, God did not allow his foreknowledge to prejudice his mercy. Have you? We're all dispensationalists in here. We kind of know the direction that Christianity is going to take, and even evangelicaldom and Baptisthood. So we have some knowledge in advance. Do we allow that to prejudice our, our prayer, our praying? Does prayer work? No. Prayer makes heart contact with God to plead with Him based upon things He's already promised. So much so that corporate prayer is able to make a Philadelphian church in a Laodicean age. Look at Ephesians 6. I really intend to get to Luke chapter 18 today, but uh, be turning to Ephesians 6. And I just want to really talk about some very basic, simple things today, very basic and fundamental things related to prayer from Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus does everything he can to invite, to excite, and to incite us to pray, regardless what God knows, and regardless of what we see happening in our society. In that respect, good as Elijah was, he wants us to be Elisha's. And this chapter gives us, in Luke chapter 18, what I will call the theology of nesiology. The theology of nesiology. So today we are enabled by this passage in Luke 18 to do something totally different. Because this study on prayer is not taught by me. It it comes fresh from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, the master supplicator, the perfect pattern prayer. And he shows us what, what we must do, just like the Apostle Paul stated here in Ephesians 6, verse 18. He said we must be praying always with all prayer. With all prayer. I mean, I think you ought to run those words together, put a quote around them, something. Let's pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, you know that prior to this in this chapter, Paul says here in Ephesians 6, we have an all-encompassing armor. And yet, and this is my first point for study today, Jesus shows us in his Luke 18 teaching how we have armor, but our armor is not armed without prayer. I mean, it fits right into what Paul is saying here. We have armor, but our armor is not armed without prayer. Prayer is the lighter. Prayer ignites the fuse. We have the sword of the Spirit. 
We have the shield of faith. We have the breastplate of righteousness. But the exoskeleton over all of that is prayer. So let me overview the edification that Jesus gives us on prayer. And I'm going to start with a few things about needing corporate prayer. And I guess I would call this a biblical philosophy of kinesiology. Okay, we'll get to the theology of kinesiology. This is the philosophy, a biblical philosophy behind it. Number one, the sustenance of spiritual life is prayer. Because this sets your attitude and your approach of trust to trials and temptations. The way you walk in the spirit of prayer, in, in the spirit is like the way you stop fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. It is to present your body in ministry. Present your body in ministry, do that instead of fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Um, use your tongue to bless, and do that instead of using your tongue to curse and revile and go back with other stuff. And by the same token, if you want to, okay, if you're in ministry, you bet, you bet be praying. Number, so number one, the sustenance to spiritual life is prayer. Number two, the sustenance of prayer is persistence. And this has to do with calling down God's involvement into your situation, inviting his involvement. That has to do with our being drawn up into intimacy and relationship with Him. We are asking for a duplicate portion similar to all the saints of the past. All of the saints of the past have done the same thing. And I'll say especially those, those who were, went through persecution, maybe as compared to us who live in affluence. But if they're really saints and they were successful spiritually, they all did this. And it is when we want to quit anything else or everything else and throw in the mantle that we must persist in prayer the most. Because if you quit praying, you've quit on God. And that is muy estupido. <laughs> See, I don't know much Spanish, only the important words. And, and I do understand that in some Spanish-speaking countries, you know, to call somebody stupid is um, a little more offensive than it is here. I only mean the word in the same way as Pastor Grace called you the other night. <laughs> so the sustenance of prayer, sustenance prayer is persistence. Number three, the sustenance of persistence is understanding. This is a, what I'm calling a philosophy of kinesiology. This has to do with knowing God, has to do with understanding his purpose, understanding his heart. This has to do with understanding divine perspective. It has to do with understanding kingdom authority. Our life song ought to be alternating verses of praying and praising. So here is the point of today's parable in Luke chapter 18, I offer it to you as my second point for study. If we want to prevail in power, we've got to persist in praying. And that is the beauty of corporate prayer. Now let me expand your mind just for a minute. 
when we come together as a church in our respective places, Midtown on Tuesday nights, Harvest, we have our Feed Your Soul prayer service on Wednesday nights. So when we come together like that, that is corporate praying. But hold on one second. Because what happens when I come together to pray, but then I take those requests with me, and I persistently keep on praying like Jesus is talking about here? Well, that's our third point for study. When we have scattered and keep praying after we've prayed together, that is still corporate prayer. I think so. And that is what is covered here by the master teacher on prayer. How many times do we have not, because we ask, but we don't seek, we don't keep knocking enough to get our answer. So we ask, we do, you know, ask, seek, knock. We do the first one. We ask. We don't keep seeking. We don't keep knocking. How many times do we prove our impatience by our attitude and philosophy of prayer? If we do not pray, we are acting like God doesn't exist. We, you know, I'm not talking about having a list necessarily or, you know, certain times to pray. You know, if, if, if the type of prayer we need is, quote, all prayer, unquote, um, then, you know, everybody has a gimmick. Sometimes evangelicals have a gimmick and they'll write a book on prayer and they'll say, okay, I'm going to show you how to spend an hour a day in prayer. And I look at that like, you know, a Roman soldier going up to a centurion and saying to the centurion, Sir, I, I wore my armor for an hour today. I had my armor on for an hour. So I, see, I, I don't subscribe to that particular philosophy of prayer. Because I think um, when we do not pray in the midst of our walk with God and our daily life, we may not be intentionally boxing God out, but we're not recognizing Him in it. And the fact that we do not recognize Him in it is why we are not Spirit-filled. That'll be the topic of the Certainty Conference this fall, the Holy Spirit. Since we do not acknowledge his presence in prayer, we do not see his power. And I'm not saying his power necessarily in that Old Testament way, that Old Testament sense of all your enemies are going to be defeated. And, uh, and No, I'm saying his power in the sense that even when you're defeated, you're, you're Elisha. You are the Elisha on the scene. Saying, you know, the only reason, Elijah, that you think this is such a hard request is because you didn't think of it. You were not about it. You were looking, I mean, bless your heart. God's been merciful to you. He's really giving you a good deal here. Uh, but, you know, he knew you didn't want to keep going. And uh, realistically, okay, you're at the end of your uh, shelf life. And uh, your expiration date is coming up, so it needed to go on to somebody else, and you weren't even thinking that way. You weren't thinking of handing me your mantle, you were only thinking of throwing in your mantle, and that's even after God told you I would be the next one to take the mantle. 
But if you acknowledge His presence, you'll have His power to make it all the way through. So you may have the Spirit's sword and still not have His power to swing it if you're not praying because you're not connecting with Him in unceasing prayer. So corporate prayer, to be complete, has to continue after the dismissal. It has to keep going after you pick up your kids. God will act in response to our pleas, but not in response to our silence. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. I wonder, was anybody ever saved for whom someone did not pray? I think Pastor Dan, Dr. Dan, alluded to that yesterday. Uh, is, is, you know, I just wonder, is any, does anybody ever get saved for whom someone did not pray? Was there ever a revival that did not happen because somebody prayed for it? Uh, Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, did you see that in verse 20? Not if you didn't bring a King James Bible, you did not. If you're not reading from a King James Version, you did not see that. Because my King James Version, which translates the Greek correctly, translates the truth correctly and says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Every other version, including the New King James, it's not that the, it's not that the Greek is any different. They just didn't think you could handle the truth. So they change it and they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going by my faith in him. It's by my faith in Jesus. And Paul says, no, baby Baba. Um, it is the faith of the Son of God that you, you better be going by. So Jesus trusts that we're going to respond spontane to spontaneous movements of the Holy Spirit in our life as they happen because they do not happen by my faith in Him. They happen by His faith in how I'm going to live. So I live by His faithfulness to fill me with His Spirit as I follow His Spirit. So if I walk in the Spirit, I'm praying all the time. Now let me take you to our text because this is a staggering truth. And Jesus gives us a whole arsenal of interesting points on prayer, points that we need at this time in our lives, at this time in our churches, at this time in our post-pandemic ministry. Uh, so first, let's look at, and this is number one, the problem that is discussed in verse one. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray. Now emphasize that first verse because Jesus starts with an area of watchfulness. It doesn't say saints ought always to pray. That's kind of interesting. It does not say tender-hearted, patient people ought always to pray. Really, it says everybody who's part of the human race ought to pray. I mean, Jesus is always blowing up the brains of the Pharisees, you know? I mean, their heads are always exploding whenever he's talking. And we are to be ready in mind and spirit to pray. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I know that if the Spirit of God is going to work this morning... He will lead some of you to help me preach by praying while I'm speaking. 
And then he'll tailor a word for your specific circumstance. So my point is, if humanity ought always to pray, it's because there's something real in prayer. So much so, Romans 8 says, verse 15, For you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now go down to verse 34. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You know, outside of math, prayer is the only thing that we can get perfectly right in this life, and you don't get math right half the time. I mean, I don't get math right. I mean, I'm not a numbers person. I'm a language person. I'm a, I'm a word person. I mean, if I walk into the classroom and there's an algebraic equation on the board, I, I say, look, hey, erase that really quick before I throw up. <laughs> I don't even know who ever thought up this type of divination and <laughs> the immorality, the immorality of taking letters to use in math. But two plus two equals four, and you get it right every time you do it the right way. But it doesn't matter how badly you think you pray, how much you think you mess it up. It does not even matter what God knows in his foreknowledge. My God is so sovereign, he can respond to the human factor and still be God. I have a much more sovereign God than R.C. Sproul and some of the others. I'm just saying so your infirmity is in your mind, and the Spirit helps your infirmity. And even when you don't know what to pray for, all you got to do is pray. All you got to do is pray, because the Spirit corrects it and utters it by His intercession. And then Christ takes it and presents it to God as our high priestly intercessor. So all you have to do is pray as long as you understand prayer is making hard contact with God to plead with Him for things He already promises us based on His mercy and His grace and His kindness and His slowness to carry out His wrath. And I've been greatly edified by Pastor uh, McKay's messages because I think God is the most humble being in the universe. He's slow to anger, yet great in power. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. So the second problem Jesus discusses is an area of weariness. Verse 1, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The concept of faint in this context means to become discouraged or want to quit and throw in the mantle. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. We don't pray because prayer works. We pray because God's willing to listen. We pray because he hears us. And that word faint in verse, verse 1 is the same word found here in Galatians 6, verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing, 
For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If you do not pray and you are not ministering, and if you do not pray because of your ministry, you will faint. Christians do not faint because they physically overwork. They faint because they spiritually underserve. Hello, somebody. Amen. That explains a whole lot right there. So B.C., before COVID, <laughs> you were discipling, where are you now? B.C., you came to church Air Sunday, where are you now? B.C., you were faithful and true and serving, what's happened to you now? And if we have a fainting fit, we need to tell ourselves, this isn't going to do. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. Oh, how the world to evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. I must tell Jesus. He will enable over the world the victory to win. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. So if you do not ask to be a duplicate of your discipler, you won't be. If you do not ask God to double his portion between you and the one you are discipling, he won't. So at the end of this session, I need you to know, you will either become watchful or weary. So we come now to the parable that is delivered. Jesus explains the major point of this verse with a parable. The story has uh, two characters, a devious man, a diligent woman. He's a devious man because... First, he has no respect for the spiritual, saying, verse 2, there was in the city a judge which feared not God. Number two, had no regard for the natural, verse 2, saying, neither regarded man. But there was someone else in that city, because while at one end of the spectrum was a devious man, at the other end of the spectrum we find a diligent woman, and her diligence is displayed. It's on display, because first, this number one, she faces resistance. Verse 3, and there was a widow in that city. She came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And you know what? The whole sermon hinges right here. Because we are praying spiritually for what that poor widow was praying for historically. We are praying to be avenged of our adversary. Now let me explain that. The church of Jesus Christ is a widow in a sense. Because after all, our bridegroom was killed. And it's true he rose from the dead and he's now alive, but he is away from us. So Satan now takes advantage of the absence of Christ himself. He robs us of our rights and privileges as children of God. What the church is crying for is that God would restore our rights and he would give us right now in this life, in this place, the portion that our husband left us. Give us the same portion of power that he had when he was delivering the message. Minister, serve on. Teacher, toil on. Mourner, weep on. Believer, hope on, but by all means, intercessor, pray on. Because here's our fourth point for study. Incessant insistence 
can get what justice cannot achieve, what legislation will never achieve, what invasions of nations and nation building will never achieve. So what about this widow, her adversary, and the judge? Verse 4, he would not avenge her for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God nor regard man. So he says something about how to face our resistance. Pray under all circumstances. Pray against all opposition. Pray beyond all delay. I've got to cut across the field here. Pray despite all distraction. Uh, watch and pray. Wait in praying. Wait Im- implies and involves and, and includes being ready. If you're waiting for the bus, you're at the bus stop. And uh, we know she's diligent because in the face of resistance, this is number two, she forges resilience. The unjust judge is talking to himself now. He is a selfish city official. He has just one good nerve left and she's getting on it. This widow, verse 5, this widow troubleth me by her continual coming. She persistently tries to get me to give in to her. I'm a circuit judge, so I make the circuit. I go to Bethel, she's there. I go to Gilgal, they open the tent flap, she's there. I make my way to Mizpah, I enter from behind the curtain in my robes, and she is right there. And before I sat down on the bench, she starts talking. We owe, as Americans, everything to the Great Awakening. We owe very little, as Americans, frankly, uh, I will say, to the Founding Fathers, but we owe more to the Great Awakening. And uh, Whitfield, as he journaled some of his time in that, Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, asked not to come back. Sunday evening, preached in St. John's, deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday, May 12th, morning, preached in St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday morning, May 19th, denounced by the Bishop of London. Sunday, Sunday evening, preached in St. Somebody Else's, deacons called a special meeting, said I couldn't return. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached on the street corner, kicked off the street corner. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached at the edge of town, kicked out of town. Sunday evening, June 2nd, preached in a pastor, 10,000 people came. So since she's facing resistance, she becomes a resistant fighter. And in her resisting, she forges resilience. So there in verse 5, where the judge says, lest she weary me. Let me hit you with this definition, because the Greek word actually means, gives me a black eye. She knocks the wind out of me. She stuns me. Maybe it was a kind of slang saying that Jesus picked up on the street. She is breaking me down, bro. She is beating me up. Oh, my aching back. I mean, if I don't do something for this woman, though she does not scare me and I do not fear God and she has no money, she is going to ruin me in front of my peers. I mean, she'll talk me under the table with her righteous request. So a saint who faces resistance to become a resistance fighter forges resilience is that you will this unjust judge help the widow well yes but look at verse 8 jesus says nevertheless nevertheless when the okay 
an unjust judge help this widow. But when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find faith on earth? Will we be persistent in our communication with him? Will we be believing him for an answer to prayer? Will we be counting on him in the midst of our crisis? Because of our unfettered free will, this question hangs in the uncertain. It's in the unanswered realm of God's sovereignty. Will God let us show his gospel with power in an age of blindness? Well, you're asking a hard thing, but keep on asking. When Jesus gets here, will he find faith in this camp? I used to think that was such an absurd thing to ask. I mean, here Jesus is standing in front of his disciples. They're having a good time. God's doing all sorts of things. He's right there with them. And then he throws his question at them. And it must have been like, well, what do you mean will there be faith? Of course there'll be faith. But, but now I know what he means. I don't know if there's going to be faith. I don't know if there's going to be much evangelical faith. And that's why corporate praying is so important. So that when I want to faint like Elijah, there is some Elisha who loves me enough and is close enough to me and understands enough to catch my mental and keep on praying. You know, if you really want to quit something, quit sin. Quit giving up. Quit dropping out. Quit being absent. Quit making excuses. Quit holding out on God. Substitute quitting with action. Substitute quitting with prayer. Let me tell you one story and I, and I, and I close. My dad got into World War II late in life, uh, but he was part of the Army occupation in Japan in 46. And then he rejoined the reserves and uh, his unit was called up to Korea during that war, and the only story I ever heard him tell about his military experience, I think I overheard him telling somebody else, was uh, about the troop ship that took him to Korea. He said he was so seasick he would have died if a buddy had not brought him some oranges to eat. Well, while crossing the Atlantic on an ocean liner, F.B. Meyer was asked to address the passengers on the subject of answered prayer, and an agnostic was present. Somebody asked him afterwards, what do you think about Dr. Meyer's uh, sermon? He said, I don't believe a word of it. And later on the afternoon, he was on his way to another service so that, as he could say, he could see what this babbler has to say, and he put two oranges in his pocket, and as he walked toward the room, he passed this elderly woman sitting on a deck chair, and, and her arm, arms were just, you know, out, and she was fast asleep. And so as a prank, he slipped those two oranges into her outstretched hands. And after the meeting, he saw the old lady happily eating one of those oranges. He said, you know, you seem to be enjoying that orange. She said, yes, sir, my father's very good to me. He said, well, surely your father cannot still be alive. She shouted, praise God, he's very much alive. She said, I've been at sea, sick for days. And I was asking God to somehow send me an orange to, to ease my seasickness. I, I suppose I fell asleep while I was praying. And when I woke up, I found that my heavenly father had given me not one orange, but two. <laughs> the apocryphal account of that story has the man saying, well, it wasn't your heavenly father, it was me. To which she replied, well, looky there. My God made the devil be his errand boy. <laughs> every head bowed, every eye closed.
if you do not if you do not take advantage of prayer as a Christian, if you don't see that advantage of corporate prayer and getting together and then, and then dispersing with the same request still on your lips, you miss out. Do not escape this retreat without praying for God to save you from your sins if you're not saved. If we're going to follow up on this post-pandemic reopening by harvesting all the spiritual fruit out in our fields, we're going to have to live in an atmosphere of prayer. So we talk about praying for God to send laborers into the fields. And sometimes we limit that to our missionary mindset. But you know, Jesus was talking about the field that was right across the road from where they were standing. You need to concentrate on heart communion with Christ. And the best way to fuel that is in corporate prayer. Sometimes it's in words that are spoken. Sometimes it's in silent groans. Sometimes it comes out as you're in your seat. Sometimes it's squeezed out in your tears. All I'm asking today is allow God to be that much to you. Father, we thank you today for this time. Uh, thank you for the fact that we could discuss and look at this topic of corporate prayer. Thank you for the challenge of your word. Lord, we pray for the ministry of your spirit, and not just in some mystical way, although I, I do believe that we miss out on legitimate mysticism sometimes, and that shortchanges us, but not just in a mystical way. Lord, we need to, we need to pray, and we need to get involved. We need to be in ministry, and, and we need to be a praying people. Um, Lord, let us do that together corporately, even as much as we do it individually, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen.